Welcome to Precision Medicine Forum Podcast, chatting with patients, healthcare, industry and research professionals about creating personalized medicines for each and every one of us. Together, we head to the holy grail, mainstream precision medicine. Here's your host, Steve Coldicott. Welcome to the Precision Medicine Forum podcast. Our guest today, I'm delighted to say, is Tamara Husson-Malaga, the president of Avita. Welcome, Tamara. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you, Steve. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, not too bad. Thank you. So, Tamara, um, you've got lots of different responsibilities and titles. Obviously, one is the president of Avita. Can you give us a bit of background on that and your other roles? I'm the president of Evita, which is a Portuguese patient organization that uh, supports families affected by hereditary cancer syndromes. So we are talking about around 10% of all types of cancer that uh, have a genetic predisposition uh, as a risk factor and, and people have very high risk to develop hereditary cancer. So for us, it's super important to identify those genetic mutation carriers before they get sick, which is quite difficult. We started to exist because uh, I myself found out about my genetic mutation in the BRCA1 gene, which uh, provides me with a super high risk for breast and ovarian cancer. In men, it can also raise the risk for prostate uh, cancer and male breast cancer. And in general, there's also a slightly higher risk for pancreatic cancer and melanoma. But um, still not the worst possible mutation. There are others that give you cancer at a very young age and the whole life long in, in every part of the body, basically. So I'm not complaining. I'm just grateful I, I found out about my, my own predisposition before I get caught by uh, a cancer at early age with the young children at home, which is mostly the case with our, in our community because of the early onset of disease. We have a lot of late-stage diagnosis because um, the self and, and even healthcare providers do not really pay attention to the first symptoms. The story of our patient organization started just like that when I was taking care of a 27-year-old pregnant lady in our hospital. She had a mastectomy due to a very aggressive breast cancer. And when I took care of her and I was listening to her baby's heartbeat, I thought, uh, what went wrong here? This is not normal. Uh, there is some something behind this whole story. And, and I followed her story. Uh, we, we turned into friends and, and understood there was a, a strong family history of breast cancer on the paternal side because uh, two aunts of her had died in their 40s of, of breast cancer. And so she was proposed for genetic uh, testing and uh, it turned out she had a BRCA1 mutation. And then I really woke up for my own family history. And, and I, I, I remembered that all my paternal aunts and even my paternal grandmother, they had died from breast and or ovarian cancer. So I ran out to genetic counseling and I said, please um, check this out. Uh, this is my family history. What do you think? And the geneticist said immediately, uh, yeah, you should have uh, genetic testing and, and even even more important because you have two li little daughters. Yeah. So we did it and I, I fortunately found out at time uh, regarding my genetic predisposition. 
And so I, I, when this young patient died, was dying two years after, uh, I promised her that that wouldn't happen again to our daughters. And uh, also the gratefulness to, to know about my condition and to be able to be proactive uh, drove me to, to open up a, a friendly shoulder for, for this community. So high-risk community, genetic mutation carrier with a super high risk. And then uh, afterwards, uh, during the, the years, I, I studied everything uh, around genetic mutation and, and cancer predisposition genes. And um, I, I reached out on European level to the uh, European reference network GenTuris, Genetic Tumor Risk Syndrome, which is a reference network that uh, unites the best specialists all over Europe regarding hereditary cancer syndromes and I represent there the genetic mutation carrier on the European level and on national level I'm, I'm now uh, uh, an official member of the National Cancer Hub stakeholder group, work group, early detection but I also want to to be in the prevention part because that's that's really my baby prevention of this kind of cancer with the biggest potential of prevention or at least early diagnosis so you're busy in short <laughs> quite busy <laughs> that's right but i'm also super motivated i mean uh, it's it, the, the thing is i'm i'm a daughter of two braca one carrier so when i found out about my own mutation i immediately thought it would come from the paternal side once we had this strong family history and it, it was true but when my mother had her second contralateral multifocal triple negative breast cancer 30 years after her first breast cancer, which was at 44, I reached out to the German uh, doctors and said, you need to test my mother because we have a, mat a paternal mutation. I have that one, but my brother, who is a father of four daughters, four girls, uh, need to be sure there is no other mutation in the family. And in fact, we found out then that also my mother had a BRCA1 mutation. Wow. And of course, my brother inherited that maternal mutation. So when, when you have all your upper generation with uh, early death because of hereditary cancer, everybody died. Uh, we had now the chance in our generation to, to test it and to be proactive. My cousin did not uh, check it out on time. She got already breast cancer when she had her pre-surgery MRI, so it was too late for her. Right. But uh, for the next generation, for our children, I want to make sure that we end this kind of cancer that is completely actionable in several ways you mentioned about the um the, you're a member of the national cancer hub stakeholder group what is that and how does i know there's quite a lot of work going on at european level what is that how does that work in portugal and 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 can you put that into the context of uh, of the european community as well european commission incentivated uh, member states to organize them on national level uh, within the national cancer hub which is a policy group and the stakeholder group and, and 
I'm the representative of genetic mutation carriers. I'm in the stakeholder group. So we had a kickoff meeting that was a public call. Whoever is interested in collaborating on this national strategy of the implementation of Europe's beating cancer plan and uh, Cancer Mission Europe, they should uh, participate. We had this meeting, they presented the structure of the National Cancer Hub and how it would work and how it would be important to uh, organize all this stuff for European projects, to, to, to run for European projects. And um, afterwards they sent us a follow-up email and everybody could first of all bring in their ideas to act on cancer in any way. So myself, for example, I proposed uh, as we have a, a Portuguese founder mutation, we could easily test any Portuguese woman uh, at 25 years for this genetic founder mutation. So this is very quick and very cheap because you know already where is the needle in the haystack. Yep, okay. So you can go there immediately and you, you don't have to wait for it uh, months or years for the result. But you check it, you check it out because it's important. And, and there is the prevention part, uh, Steve. Our system is built to identify a genetic mutation carrier only after he or she gets sick at a young age with hereditary cancer. Yep. That's a failure in cancer prevention. So our idea is if we have this founder mutation which, which turns us in number one in Europe with BRCA2 mutations, yeah, so we have to act on that. We can check out our women at 25 because that is the age when you can be proactive regarding the genetic predisposition and when the uh, vigilance starts at 25. So when we identify those women, we lose 50% of gene carriers because they have a lack of family history. How it was the case of my mother, because my father had all these sisters and there was a huge family history. My mother did not have siblings, so there was nothing else to know. Yeah. Uh, who had what? There was nothing else. So we, we found out by coincidence. And we can prevent this and identify genetic mutation carrier even without family history. And then we can save the whole family of those women. Yeah. You know, it's this cascade testing. If you have once this genetic mutation carrier identified, then you find out uh, was it the father or the mother of this 25-year-old woman and then you understand which family members you, you need also to test afterwards and you save the whole family. But what are the issues around that though? Because there's obviously issues around individuals. You know, the, the, um, you, know you took the steps that you did when you did. Um, as you said earlier, your, your, your cousin didn't. And so there's, there's many challenges around this, aren't there? You know, if uh, a daughter of a, of a BRCA1 carrier thinks there's any chance of it, you know, they, they may they may embrace the, the, the idea of, of, of genetic counselling and what have you. They may be terrified and just want to bury their head in the sand. Or they may be completely ignorant of the fact. And so how do we overcome all of those three challenges? That's a very good question, Steve, actually. Um, that was the reason why I decided to show my face related to hereditary cancer because I, I need people to see that I'm still here and I'm only here because I found out at time that I have this predisposition. Yeah. Otherwise I wouldn't. 
and uh, you can ask any uh, cancer patient with hereditary cancer they would have loved to know before about their predisposition so uh, but th there it is how do you convince people to gain the courage to know something that they really don't want to know because they are not feeling it right now or you have this strong family history already everybody died of cancer in your family and then you have the chance to find out why so that is a strong reason why people uh, would do the genetic testing and it's actionable once again and it's not only with the person her or himself it's also for the next generation first of all you have a complete different different vigilance the, the populational screening comes way too late for our communities. You get cancer much earlier. So first of all, you start your vigilance at the indicated age at, with, with hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. It would be around uh, 25, depends on the gene. And uh, then when you have your own children, you can have a pre-implementation genetic diagnosis that is a, a fertilization in vitro and then you choose in between three days in lab from eight cells of the embryo you just take one cell out and you check if the mutation is there in this embryo or not and you can't end with the mutation in a family right. that is very important for some families we crossed our ways with several several couples that were really afraid to have children because they didn't want to pass down the mutation and they, they had no idea that they had this possibility to exclude the mutation in, in an embryo. There may be people, they have an ethical problem with that, but I, I don't know why. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is yeah, yeah, but when you do a, a normal fertilization in vitro, you also have several embryos. And then one by coincidence is implanted and, and the others, they are in the freezer. I mean, what is, that's also, I mean, there are so many <laughs> reasons that are not reasonable. Uh, a, a genetic mutation in a family already caused, uh, if it's not a, in a de novo mutation, it, it already caused much suffering and early death due to metastatic cancer. So, so people understand why it would be really great for their children to not carry this mutation. It's the, the decision of, of each individual and it's not uh, a medical opinion because of ethical uh, preoccupations that should count. That's not the case. It's, it's the patient that, that must decide this, this method. And we, we uh, share those successful stories in our uh, social media. The other time I, I just had looked it up, we have around 14,000 followers in our social media and they come in fact from all over the world. I mean, the, the association uh, Facebook channel is only in Portuguese, but uh, on LinkedIn we have also uh, posts in English and so on. We have really followers from all over the world and uh, we, are, we are getting heard. We are getting heard because we also received um, this year we were invited by five or six international consortia to integrate EU projects, for example. And that, that is a sign that we are being heard. Right. And everybody that reaches out to us, 
um, you know, you have 100,000 decisions to take when you get this diagnosis, which is not a disease. You are not sick, so you cannot go to a patient organization in that way. You, you want to talk to somebody that has been there and uh, can go give you all the information you need so you can take your informed decision. And that is what happening uh, in our case. And ev every time when somebody reaches out to us and we show them all the wonderful possibilities we have nowadays, including target therapy for certain hereditary cancers, that's also super important, less side effects, more uh, success in, in uh, quality of life and extending lifespan. So they are really wonderful possibilities. And it's there if you have a genetic mutation in the family and you put your head in the sand it will get you anyways if you look up and in front and you inform yourself regarding your options you can have a very happy long life so evita itself um obviously you're based in portugal are there other organizations around the world patient groups that are focused on hereditary i mean you, you mentioned you know you you mentioned the numbers and it just seems ludicrous to me that, you know, that, that, that such a large percentage of people could be carriers and actually the prevention just isn't there. No, it isn't. I can tell you our coordinator at the European Reference Network, Jen Turis, her name is Nicole Nogabrugge. She affirms clearly that we only identify 20 to 30 percent of the genetic mutation carriers. So we are losing around 80 percent that are walking around and that will be surprised badly by a, by a ugly cancer. So fortunately, we have, for example, uh, Evita had the first kickoff in learning with the uh, patient organization in the United States called FORCE, Facing Our Risk of Cancer Empowered. And uh, I went to their first conference in 2010. And um, when I saw all these young, bald women uh, with little children at home and uh, or they won't have children anymore, I thought this is really something we need to work out. And um, I felt in a family, you know, with all these people with the same condition. And that was when I took the decision, we have to open this friendly shoulder also in Portugal, because there was nothing to go to. And so FORCE is a huge organization with a lot of important information uh, for English and Spanish speaking uh, people. And then right. in Europe, we have some several patient organizations. You can look up at the Earn Gen Tourist website, where is the information also for patients. And they, they have uh, the organizations listed in all over in Vienna, in, in Germany, in Italy, uh, yeah, in, in quite in Slovenia. There, there are some, not very much, not very much uh, so. And we, we want to change things. First of all, we need an International Hereditary Cancer Day. We need a day where the whole world is talking about hereditary cancer. Yeah. Otherwise, it won't come to everybody's ears and eyes. And the, this uh, hereditary cancer syndrome thing is so complex in any way Besides the 20,000 decisions, you also need to communicate. The communication is quite complicated. How do you talk to your parents? One of them 
pass down the mutation to you? How do you talk to your, to your partner? I will cut off healthy body parts. How do you talk to your children? We have something in the family uh, and I may have passed it down to you involuntarily, of course, but still. So people have in fact the right not to want to know. This is when you have a hereditary cancer syndrome that gives you cancer in adult age. You cannot test a child. The child must decide when it's uh, adult from 18 on if if she or he wants to know about the condition but to to decide if they want to know or not they they first need to learn what they do not want to know <laughs> or want to know <laughs> well yeah quite. so this communication thing is really huge also and and it had had quite a psychological impact also on the family it's a family issue. It's not a, an individual disease. We've spoken before, and I think that you, you know we talk about communication, but education is another element of it as well. You know, because some people just really can't or don't want to know to explore the facts. You know, you're, you know, everyone listening to this will, will, you know, they'll they'll get the passion in your voice that you're a massively passionate person about this subject, um, because you've, for want of the better word, lived the dream nightmare um, <laughs> but <laughs> I find often that speaking with um, patients patient representatives patient groups etc etc that there is a common theme amongst you and that is the passion for the subject you live it in in the first person no? it, it, it's a real life experience and uh, you want to share these learnings that you were forced to have with uh, everybody because you want you just want to save other people's life i mean again uh, whoever i talk to who has already hereditary cancer tells me i would have loved to know about this before of course <laughs> even with the uh, especially with all those late stage diagnoses but we uh, try to educate we go out with huge campaigns uh, like i told you 14000 people are following uh, our posts on social media we we uh, take advantage of the national and international days of this or that cancer that is also related to hereditary cancer 10% of the most frequent cancer breast colorectal prostate cancer 10% of 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 childhood cancer is hereditary and also the most deadly cancer like ovarian, stomach, pancreatic cancer. A lot of cancers involved in hereditary cancer syndromes. And whenever we have one of those days, we talk about this percentage of, of this kind of cancer that may be hereditary and be aware of your family history. And the other thing we decided to do after we, we uh, identified all the huge gaps we have in hereditary cancer, which are, first of all, a complete lack of data. Yeah. We do not have data. Uh, we we have micro databases of the institutions that treat one or the other person, but there is no data crossing, and it's also very sensitive genetic uh, information. But there are technological ways to do it. We know that, and so we have no data. We are, we miss fifty percent because they do not have uh, an evident family history. We lose some people because they do not test a whole gene panel for a certain type of cancer. They only go, for example, for BRCA mutation. So they need also to, to look after other genes. Then um, 
We have super long waiting times for the first genetic counseling, more waiting time for the result, years of waiting time for preventive surgeries. So all this we need to shorten and, and need to find better answers. So uh, we need more money, more allocation of resources. We are conducting a study with a national consortium regarding the uh, socio-economical burden of hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. This will help us to show uh, decision makers and finances look this cancer is super expensive yeah. it's way more expensive than sporadic cancer and and, and even being only 10 percent which is not true but we will prove that afterwards with our patient registry that we are kicking off soon a vita platform so we we uh, have 10 percent but the cancer may cost five to ten times more because it's at early age, at the hike of um, productivity, fertility, all this is involved. So this is super, it's easy to, to get there, but we need the, the numbers on paper, the scientific evidence. And this we are treating. And the other aspect is our patient registry, which is also a platform uh, with uh, that works with artificial intelligence, where we uh, will provide personalized information regarding the person's the user's conditions so a BRCA carrier won't hear about Lynch syndrome um, but all the best news from from trustful sources uh, regarding the hereditary breast ovarian cancer scenario so we will raise health literacy we will inform regarding clinical trials all over Europe here in Portugal, we are not doing well with clinical trials. We, we are uh, now stocking up, but it's a, it's a slow process. But we have uh, many women with ovarian cancer. They do not have a clinical trial here. They go to the neighbor uh, Spain. They have several there, you know. So we inform people about when you have a metastatic cancer, you, you want to experience an innovative drug that may extend your life with really good quality of life. Has COVID had any impact on the trials? Because, you know, is there not the possibility for remote trials? COVID did not have any positive effect on any other uh, disease. Yeah. Everybody shut completely down regarding other chronic diseases. Uh, the COVID cases uh, filled up the hospitals. They filled up the intensive care units. So they, they could not provide surgeries for other people because if you provide surgery you need space on the uh, intensive uh, uh, intensive care unit um, and th there was just nothing and prevention did not exist anymore i mean uh, nobody could go to the hospital if not very urgent uh, case and prevention is has no urgency in our health politics that's also a, a problem the life cycle of the government uh, does prevent uh, the, the investment in health because the outcome of an investment in health is no, never immediately and so the, the good outcome goes to the other government uh, that comes next and nobody likes that you know we, <laughs> we struggle with that all the time the wonders know? of politics yeah. <laughs> I have this idea, I want to make it a bit of fun and I, you're going to set the benchmark. We're going to, I'm going to ask you about five different stakeholders 
and your thoughts on how they can improve the um, the push towards precision medicine. We're going to call it forward in five minutes. Okay, so I've got a, I've got a special timer for you. I'm going to hold it up to the screen. No pressure. <laughs> Look at that. That's beautiful. Okay, so so you got one minute for each category, and I'm going to ask you. I'll give you a pause in between each one. So, how can these stakeholders help? with forwarding precision medicine. And the first stakeholder we're going to look at is the research community. Okay. Okay, go. So, research community should intensify their contacts with patients in the first place. Because if you include patients from the very first second in the life cycle of medicine, you will prevent a lot of the ways that is practiced right now. We know that the life cycle of medicine has a waste uh, around 98% over the course and, and that is an incredible number and a huge waste of money we would use urgently uh, for investment in, in prevention for example. But uh, if you involve patients actively and you, you will wonder regarding the huge expertise patients have uh, more and more because they are trained. There are training programs out there and patients use that and this will make research much better and meaningful. Yeah. One okay. second. Whoa, look at that. <laughs> yeah. Is that what I can't see? It, but is, is it one second left? <laughs> Amazing. Right. That's pretty good. Okay, next one. Um, so, healthcare systems or healthcare practitioners, whichever you want to take. Yeah, healthcare system needs to be organized, needs to prevent waste and disease. That's the, that's the main pillar of sustainability in a healthcare system, is prevention of waste and disease. And every sick people is again waste for the system so if you have hereditary cancer that is perfectly preventable it's really a huge waste uh, for the system we always uh, claim oh, we need more money to invest the money we have and we won't have more we we are still in a pandemic and we now have a horrible war in europe there won't be more money we just need really to uh, organize better the system uh, in the in the way that we prevent waste and uh, disease then we can reinvest again and that will be uh, constantly winning wow is that is that say what does that say one again again yes one again right next one <laughs> is industry what can they do yeah, industry, they can partner up with patient organizations. Uh, fortunately, we have a European code of uh, good practice uh, between industry and patient organizations. So they can uh, join forces, for example, to reach out to people with campaigns, awareness campaigns regarding uh, certain cancer types, for example. And um, yeah, support uh, patient organizations also in the production of their material uh, for informa to inform uh, people because it, I mean, it depends where you live. In Norway, patient organizations are 100% funded by the government. If you are in Portugal, that is not the case at all. So you just uh, go on the street and sell some little pink dolls 
but then you don't work, right? Or you just need to accept the help from industry. Wow. One again. Is that one or zero? You stopped wow. too late. Oh, yeah, blame me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, right, two to go. The next one is governments and payers. Oh, yeah. Uh, governments and payers. So if you uh, do not allocate more budget to disease prevention, you will, will be overwhelmed by disease. We already have to take all this late stage diagnosis in any chronic disease in consequence of the pandemic and the lockdowns all over and uh, filled up hospitals. So we are now battling with much more, much sicker people than we had before the pandemic. So do not always treat sick people to really uh, prevent disease in many people. That's possible and uh, you should not ignore anymore disease prevention. It's one of the main pillars, once again, of the sustainability. Six. Yes. This is, you, so you're getting good at it now. Okay, this, you, can take <laughs> this, you can take the extra six seconds now because this is, this is the one you'll want to talk more about. Okay. The final, final group, patients and patient advocacy groups. What should they be doing to really help push forward precision medicine at scale? So patient and patient advocates, they should unite forces, you know, stronger together, uh, a critical mass of, of input uh, for policy making. So join forces, organize yourself together uh, to talk to government and to other stakeholders to make them see what uh, it means to have your conditions in the real world. Because one thing is deciding uh, theoretical stuff in, in meetings. The other thing is when you have to live with it and when you have to, to uh, when you try to survive this kind of stuff. The other thing is what we are doing, uh, generate evidence, generate data. Patient-generated data are super, super valuable and complementary to clinical data. And this is the work we can do. It's not easy, it's very intense, but it's super, super important and super valuable for a much better outcome, for better quality of life for our patients and for more good life, longer time. Impressive, <laughs> very good. <laughs> <laughs> you're too nice to me oh uh, no that's good it's really good i just think to get something in five minutes that covers everyone is brilliant and i'm, I'm excited to hear what other people think and what other people you know when you know other guests what ideas they'll come up with and hopefully we can actually listen to one another and say right this is what we're missing this is what we need to do we say time and again that collaboration is so critical and we you know we need to be communicating with one another no doubt about that Steve thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for the invitation I'm really honoured that was Precision Medicine Forum podcast visit precisionmedicineforum.com to get all the show resources and find out about our upcoming episodes and events and please subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.